I hope you do have your Bibles open with us as we continue together in this sermon series, the Songs for the Journey, the Songs of Ascent, here from Psalm 120 through 134. And uh, I hope you'll keep your Bible open during the course of our time this morning in Psalm 123, a short psalm, a psalm that would not be difficult to get into our minds and hearts. A psalm that we might find it easy to pray at times. I thought that what we would do is we would begin our time together um, by, I want to highlight something that we've been, many in the congregation have been using, and uh, maybe just offer a a little bit of a a glimpse into Psalm 123 using the the Bible Together journal. This is a journal that uh, particularly many of the youth have been using. And uh, it's been wonderful to work with them uh, through some of the questions of the Bible Together Journal. Really, the purpose is simply to get us engaging with the Word, paying attention to what is found there together as a community. Uh, The journals are uh, available just outside if you would like one after the service. But in the, the journal, there are four questions. And what I thought I would do this morning is go to Psalm 123 and ask these four basic questions of the Scripture together and give you a little glimpse into my own time with Psalm 123. The first question, the celebration question, is who is God and what is His gospel? Friends, I think it's one of the most important questions that we can ask of the Scriptures. It's a question that we skip over. We say, what does this passage have to do with my life? It's about God first, not about you first. And friends, we would be deficient if we did not see who is God and what is the good news about our Savior, our Redeemer. As I considered this Psalm 123 myself, I saw that the Lord is enthroned in the heavens. And that's something I would encourage you to do in your own study of the Word. Pay attention to the words that are actually in the Word, and you'll see that Psalm 123 says to you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Who is God and what is this gospel? He's the one who is enthroned in the heavens. He's the one to whom I look for mercy. Mercy comes from your hand. As I looked at the second question, the connection question, I asked, who am I in light of who God is? I wrote simply, well, I am a servant who looks to his master. Lord, I am your servant and you are my master. I've lo- I learned to look to your hand for mercy. You've given me much great mercy in recent days, much of which I didn't even know to ask for. Today, I have so many needs. I'm not even sure what to ask for today either. A simple Response to the word of connection. The third question, community. What is true of my household, of my community, of my church in light of this passage? Well, the passage says, our our eyes look to the Lord, our God. Our soul has had more than enough of contempt. I was reminded that this cry for mercy is not just an individual cry. It's a cry that we enter into as a community, as a body. And it is truly a gift that so much mercy has come to me through the church in the last week, particularly. And then I turn to the fourth question. What does the Lord require according to the Scripture? And I wrote, your requirement is so simple, Lord. You require simply that we look to you in faith, our merciful, heavenly 
master. Now, I hope that the Bible Together Journal continues to serve the church as we pay attention to the words of the Word of God. And one of the results that I pray for is that as we move into prayer, having read the Word, that our prayer will be deeply informed by God's revelation of Himself to our community together, that we would approach the God who actually is. This week in Psalm 123, I know it helped me to enter into this psalm with a repeated, throughout the course of the week, simple request for mercy. Lord, I look to your hand for mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy. A couple weeks ago, I offered this quote to you, uh, a quote from James K.A. Smith in his book, Following the Road of St. Augustine. He offers uh, he, he, he holds out to us St. Augustine's um, refugee spirituality, he calls it. And in it is an account of what the Christian life feels like. The disciple, as much as anyone, he says, finds herself in between, on the way, fatigued, yet hopeful. Conversion is not an arrival at our final destination. It's an acquisition of a compass. Conversion to Christ gives us the destination to look for. The one to look to. On this way, this journey home, we will confront scorn and contempt and we will become fatigued. But our eyes are fixed not only on our hope for home, but on our help for the journey on the Lord for his mercy, on our journey to a home we've never been to before. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come to your word today, that you would work in your people. You would give us a a glimpse of your glory, that you would give us a glimpse of your sovereignty, that you are enthroned in the heavens. You are a master. We are but servants. As we look to your hand, I pray that we would see what your hand, your mighty right hand, has done. And so we would expect that our our cry for mercy would be met with your grace. Teach us this, Lord, we pray. Even as we pray for mercy, even as we pray for help for this journey, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, this passage has four verses. It's really a a psalm in two parts. It begins with the call, and I hope you see it in front of you, to you, speaking to the Lord, to you, I lift up my eyes. The passage begins by lifting up his eyes. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the Psalms of Ascent, as we make our way to the worship of the Lord, as we make this way, Psalm 120 is a cry of distress to the Lord from someone who has suffered a great deal. Then Psalm 121 has the psalmist singing a song of praise to the true God who helps us and protects us. Psalm 122 sings a psalm of joy and justice in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. And today's psalm is a simple four-verse cry for mercy to the Lord. 
Now what's interesting is if you look at those four psalms, the first psalm is a psalm of lamenting. It's a cry. The second psalm is the psalmist looking to the hills for help. Where does my help come from? The Psalm 122 is the psalmist looking to Jerusalem, to the throne of justice and the worship of the people at the temple. And now in Psalm 123, he's arrived at where he will finally look. He is looking to the hand of the master for mercy. This is a wonderful psalm to make our journey to. I lift up my eyes. I want you to notice something about how the psalm is ordered. You're going to notice that by looking at the scriptures in front of you, that you'll see that the first half of the psalms, verses 1 and 2, are a description of movement and expectation. It's a description of an activity. It's a description of a humble posture of faith. We don't actually hear any words being spoken. Instead, it's a simple description of where the psalmist's eyes are looking. In the second half, the psalmist is actually using his words as he cries out to the Lord for mercy. It is a guttural, repeated cry for mercy. We have a short psalm, a short psalm that takes place in two movements. The first half is the look of a servant to his or her master or maidservant. And the second are the words of that servant. When we look to the Lord and we see that we have his attention, we see when we look at the hand of the Lord, we glimpse out of the corner of our eye that he's looking at us. He's giving us the master is giving us his attention. And we burst forth with words. Or as Josh Moody in his commentary simply says, words gush out. And it's a gush of words. A cry for mercy. But before we consider the words, let us consider the Lord. The passage begins. To you, I lift up my eyes. Now you can put a period there. That's enough. We know what, to, what took place. We know the activities of the servant. But that's not the point of the Scriptures so very often. Uh, it's so very important that we notice when this happens that the psalmist gives us more information than simply what the servant does. It gives us information about who God is, what we ought to call to mind. When he says, to you... I lift up my eyes, we should call to mind, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. I lift up my eyes, and when I lift up my eyes, what should I call to mind? Who should I be thinking about? Not just God generically, not to just some divine sovereign, but specifically, we ought to call to mind when we lift up our eyes, the Lord who is throned in the heavens. Last week, we looked at the throne in Jerusalem. This week, we look at the throne of heaven. In the hymn, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, I believe it's Fanny Crosby who wrote this. She writes, Let me at thy throne of mercy find a sweet relief. Kneeling there in deep contrition, help my unbelief. This psalm is a confession. 
It's a confession of deep faith in the Lord who is enthroned in the heavens. We could use this psalm as our prayer of confession. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. I wonder if a significant part of our own failure to look to the Lord in our distress is a simple lack of faith. For that reason, the hymn that I just read to you ends with, Help my unbelief. Now that I'm finally looking to you, help me. Why didn't I look to you sooner? I can list off to you, just as Mark drew our attention to in the prayer of confession, I can list off to you all of the places that I look and how long it took me to finally lift my eyes to the one who is enthroned in heaven. We still trust ourselves. We trust our self-sufficiency. Perhaps we trust our own advanced culture and prosperity in the midst of trial, to mediate the edges of the trial. We know that we're not sovereign and can't make it all go away, but we trust in our prosperity to take the edges off. What is needed is that we allow this psalm to coax us into looking to the Lord and there begin a a humble request. Help my unbelief. It's been so long since I've looked this way to the hand of the Master. The psalm helps us with our unbelief in this way. It doesn't just open up with a description of the actions of the psalmist. It begins with a description of the Lord. Who is the Lord? And what is his gospel? May our faith be encouraged and our unbelief dismantled by the confession that the Lord is on the throne. Our eyes are looking to help from the throne of heaven itself. Let that reality wash over us and coax us to look to his hand. Now, I found it fascinating when I read this psalm through for the first time in recent weeks. Behold, verse 2, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. This is the way that we approach the throne of heaven as a servant to his master, as a maidservant to her mistress. We're given the disposition and the posture of our approach. It's an approach of humility. It's an approach of dependence. Note those two words. They're important for us, particularly the word dependence. As the servant watches the hand of the master, the powerful right arm of the master, the servant is in a position of dependence. If any help would come, it would only come by the hand of the master or of the mistress. So let us remember who is on the throne. The the first thing that this psalm really tells us is you're not on the throne. You don't get to legislate your own justice or mercy. You are one that is in the position of humble dependence upon a master for any mercy. We bring a humble, even if a passionate and emotional, request. We do not bring demands. We bring a request. 
John Calvin helpfully gives us a little perspective on this. He says, we know how shamefully servants were treated in ancient times and what reproaches might be cast upon them. And while they would never move a finger to repel the outrage, being therefore deprived of all means of defending themselves, imagine what would happen if a servant, a servant in the community would lash out at one who had wronged them. They're deprived of defending themselves. The only thing that remained for them to do was what is here stated, to crave the protection of their master. What will the master do when he finds out what has been done to his servant? You see, we can't protect ourselves, and so we look to those who have authority over us for help and protection. What greater authority is there than the throne of heaven for help and protection? For he has authority not only over ourselves, but over all who would do us harm. You see, the Lord isn't just stepping in to to protect his servants. He is stepping in to bring mercy to them, yes, but also judgment upon unworthy servants. For all are the servants of the throne of heaven. The one who is enthroned in heaven has authority over all the earth, and we watch his hand for mercy. This is such a helpful perspective as we who live in a postmodern cultural context of radical individualism of personal autonomy this seeks to cast out all sense of authority as we uphold personal freedom as the greatest good this is our cultural disposition as Josh Moody writes our contemporary world tends to say that if we want to be free from repression It starts with freeing yourself from submission to God. From, do you hear that? From the throne of heaven. Then we'll truly be free. Then we can protect ourselves. Friends, that is the arrogance of a people at ease. That is the arrogance of a people who have experienced too much of prosperity. What happens when the Lord of heaven takes that away? Because he's the Lord whether we seek to cast him off or not. And it's exactly the opposite of the cry of the psalmist. It is because the psalmist sees the Lord as the Lord of himself and all of creation that he comes to the Lord with humility, in utter dependence, in expectation of refuge and relief, of mercy. The psalmist comes as one who is humble and dependent. Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, quoted in Romans 9, verse 15, says this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Those are the words of the sovereign king of the universe. He will do as he pleases. As we move forward, we must begin with the confession, the Lord is free. He is not bound. He alone is enthroned in the heavens and he alone is free. 
His disposition for mercy is founded upon His own wisdom and His own goodness. It is, in fact, good news. It is gospel news that the Lord who is free is pleased to show mercy upon His subjects. He's free. And He who will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy has chosen to have mercy on us. This is the greatest of news. This is the Gospel. In John chapter 13, it's a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful passage in which we see the character and disposition of the Lord and what He would have for His disciples who follow after Him. In John 13, verses 16 through 17, we get a glimpse of His kindness and mercy. Here He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Now what you have to understand about that is what Jesus has just done in the passage is he has just taken a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. Let's be clear about what a disciple is. A disciple is one who follows after a master, who call him Lord. And the Lord asked for a towel, took the towel and washed the disciples' feet. It is from that position then the Lord says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's putting the disciples in their place. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Where is their place? Below the master. Where is the master? Walking in goodness and mercy. As the disciples looked to the hands of their master, as they ought, just like the psalmist, they looked to the hand of the master. What is the hand busy doing? It's kneeling on the floor, on the ground, holding a towel in a profound act of mercy. How about that hand to look to? The one who belongs on the throne of heaven, washing the feet of his disciples. How can we but look to the hand of the master for mercy? The master whose hand is a nail scarred hand and not expect to receive good news mercy. So, the passage says, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Until he has mercy. That's so important. We don't enter the throne room. We don't approach what the scriptures call the throne of grace. We don't approach and think to ourselves, I'll give him 24 hours. And then I'm going to try another throne for help. And we laugh. That's kind of silly. You didn't do that this week? You didn't pray in the morning and strive during the day? To fix your own problem, not from a position of submission and rest. Lord, I will labor, but I will labor as one who is your servant. And if any help would come, it will not be by means of my labor, but by means of your mercy. That's how you were all week long? If so, I I would just invite you, come on up. Uh, You've got the pulpit next week, because I don't have that one figured out yet. I need, 
I need this psalm to help my unbelief. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. We look and we wait. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We could spend the rest of our time unpacking that verse alone. Prayer is the business. It is the watchful labor of the one who is in need. And I hear a note of thanksgiving in the words, until he has mercy upon us. The psalmist who goes to the hand, looks to the hand of the Lord for mercy, knows it's coming. The servant just doesn't know when. The servant knows how this works. He knows mercy is coming. He just doesn't know when. This is the disposition of the psalmist in the first half of the psalm as we watch him simply looking, lifting up his eyes to the throne of heaven. Then he continues, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. I think the word O is the most overlooked and neglected words in this psalm or really any of the psalms. The word Oh, when was the last time you stopped, looked at it, and highlighted it? Ooh, that's a good word. Oh. But sit there, think, feel, believe the word oh. It's a word that we neglect, but I know what you I know that you know what it means. I know that you've cried out, you've groaned for mercy, for help. For strength, it's a cry, an exclamation, an interruption of a thought with an emotion and a punctuation. Oh, Lord, have mercy. He can't continue. He's already said it, but he can't continue without this exclamation. Oh, Lord, and he has to repeat. Have mercy upon us. Take a moment. I would invite you. Write your need for mercy. Punctuate it with the cry, oh, I would only ask you this morning to, to elongate the cry, oh, and I know, you know what it is to cry out, oh, whoa, help, elongate that to, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Twice the psalmist cries out. He flanks the O Lord with this cry for mercy. Note that his cry for mercy is upon us. Again, I think this is helpful and corrective to us. Why are we so hyper-individualistic that we rarely cry out for mercy for the people of God or even have eyes to see what the church might need mercy regarding? We're so busy looking to ourselves in our own households. We don't even know how to cry. We're not even sensitive to the cry for mercy. While it is appropriate to apply the psalm to consider some personal trial or a trial in a household for which you would cry out to the Lord for mercy, I think the most appropriate application of the psalm is for the people of God together. It's a people making their journey to the worship of the Lord, living their lives in His 
presence who have found trial in the journey and are in need of help. Not help because I haven't figured out how to pay some subscription for more entertainment. Oh, Lord! Netflix. (laughs) Or other things that have made their ways deep into our heart that we cry out, Lord, why would you take that idol from me? The real cry is, oh, Lord, I long to see your face and all I see is enemies. And they would seek to thwart the path of we, your sojourners, servants to your household. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do we see the tribulation of the church? Do we even have eyes to see that we might cry out, oh Lord, have mercy. We have been slandered, often by those who pretend to be the church, but are no true church. If you were really the church, you would give in to the culture, increasingly so. And there is a slander that comes. I believe that the church is confronting many trials in the days in which we live, right now, this cultural moment. How often are our cries for mercy brought to the Lord on behalf of the church, the body of Christ, when we hear slander in the news and in the community, is your response to cry out to the throne for mercy. I can tell you my response is outrage. That's normally what I do. I, I, I tend to be pretty good at seeing through vain arguments. Just one of my little things I enjoy doing. I love to cry out, that's ridiculous. I can't believe they would say that's so stupid the way the argument kind of went like this. Prayerlessness No dependence, no cry for mercy. Have mercy, O Lord. The psalm coaxes my heart. These days, I have many black brothers and sisters who have told me that they are grieving in ways that I have not had a guttural rise of grief. I I don't have a great O rise up in me like I have among friends, brothers and sisters, who are black. I read of others in the church who are struggling to discover the nature of justice and equality in, in a culture in which we live. They're struggling. They're wrestling with questions. Some are answering, offering answers maybe a little too quickly. And there I am, dividing arguments. I wonder, even right now as I say this, how quickly your and my minds turn to arguments and politics. Like you're ready. No matter what I say next, you're ready to rip it apart, to show why it's wrong, show why it doesn't add up. That's not a cry for mercy. That's just inequality. It's not just, it's not a, are you ready? What if we didn't say anything except this? Oh, Lord. Have mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Here's the thing. When we cry out for mercy, we're crying out to the one who is on the throne. And you know what he is not in need of? Sound arguments when we're speaking to him. 
He is not in need of our great ability to divide arguments and truths when we're calling out to him for mercy. We simply look to his hand as a people who join with the church in the grief in which we find ourselves. And the cry is, oh, Lord, have mercy. I would invite us to join in that cry and trust in the Lord for his wisdom and grace. Here's how it says, here's how it moves on, continues on. Our soul, I love this, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Our soul, the assault, is upon the essence of the being, scorn and contempt. This is not just an injustice that has taken place. It's not just scorn. It's not just contempt. It's not a simple wrong that has been done that causes the psalmist to cry out. It is a wrong that is compounded by cruelty of those who are sheltered from suffering the wrong in the culture. Do you see it? When he speaks of the wrong, it's of the scorn of those who are at ease. That hurts even more. It's a wrong compounded by cruelty. Not just a wrong, but as Josh Moody says, it's a wrong increased by by a gross cruelty. I'm reminded of a time in my life, in my early marriage. Sandy and I were suffering financially. We lacked a great deal of wisdom. I confess that maybe a little easier these days. And an older gentleman, I went to him for advice. All he could do was talk about he and his wife, who had never been in debt, and they had even bought their first house without using a loan. At that moment, all I felt was scorn of those who are at ease. It was exhausting. And often that sort of experience is a genuine trial of endurance, not only to suffer a wrong, but to suffer at the hands of those who are proud and at ease. I wonder what it might have been like if he would have gone to me perhaps first to the throne for mercy. Help my brother. Now I know how stupid he's been because he was older and wiser. And you can see I'm a little older and I confess I was dumb about the way I was handling money. But what if he, who knew how dumb I had been, went with me to the throne and simply said, Lord, have mercy. And perhaps then from that place we could talk together. Friends, before we continue, there's a warning for us. I I do not want to suggest that the people in this room do not suffer. In fact, in just a moment, you'll hear me suggest that if you remain faithful As the church together, there is likely a very great deal of suffering that yet remains for us. But let us consider, in the scope of humanity today, no matter what station you are in in this culture, in this society, we are counted as those who are at ease in the world. May we not be counted as those who scorn or who are proud. There, I think there's a caution for us in this psalm to consider, to be perhaps a little quicker in the world to cry out for mercy. Let me suggest that the way we are humbled is by approaching the hand of the master as a fellow servant with those around us 
who are suffering. Let us remember, there is but one station for those who are in Christ. In this world, there are many stations. There are many roles. There are many positions. There are many ways to be prosperous or to suffer. But in Christ, there is but one station, and that is on your knees at the foot of the cross. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let us take up that place and look together to the hand of the Master for mercy. And we join in their song, O Lord. Now, there is much suffering in the Western church in this moment in history. Now, that may come as a surprise to you. It may seem even presumptuous to speak of suffering of the church in the West. Is it not the church in the East or perhaps in the global South that has suffered much? And the answer is yes, and we ought not lose that perspective. And yet, as Western culture around us increasingly casts off any sense of responsibility to a creator or the constraint of our freedoms to the rule of a holy God, I think it is a pastoral responsibility to prepare the church to suffer. And I think that this psalm helps us as it calls us to journey to the Lord with our eyes fixed on Him. There will be many troubles. What is the disposition of a people that I do not think it is a stretch to say we'll face increasing troubles. Steve McAlpine has been helpful to me a few years ago. He's in Australia, and he spoke, I think, very wisely in an article called Athens is Fencing, Babylon is a Cage Fight. The premise of the article is that up to quite recent history in Western culture, there has been a sense that we've been living in a sort of contemporary Athens, that the cultural climate is like an Athens, that we, if we can only present rational arguments for the faith in the public square, then we will be afforded space to speak and will be received as respectable equals in public debate. All right, it's a very clean, proper Athens-like idea. You don't have to go back more than a few days to see that the idea of public debate or rational argument is nearly dead in this culture. It has been replaced with something more akin to a cage fight. Understand, he wrote this a number of years ago. We live in a culture that isn't so much akin to Athens and its rational public dialogue as much as it shares in a semblance with Babylon and its lion's dens into which those who are in authority or have power would throw their opponents. If there's any public contest, it doesn't look like a civil debate or argument or conversation. Increasingly, it looks more like a cage fight. Let me put it to you this way. I remember the days in my youth when Christians were derided in media as stupid or backward. Those stupid Christians and their silly backward thoughts with their God as their crutch. We were afforded space on debate panels, but we were often mocked as being backward in our belief in a holy God. But the strategy of the church was still to fight for space in the public square to enter into a conversation, even if we would be mocked when we get there. It wasn't fun, but at least it was civil. 
But now, increasingly, I'm watching those with a microphone, those in the media and elsewhere, not so much call the church stupid, but call the church morally evil. To call the church as the ones who are not backward, but are on the wrong side of history. And must be removed as such. I find myself left concerned with getting an opportunity to make Christians heard in the public square and more concerned that our arguments, belief, and reputations are not dragged into the public square and beaten. You would think that the response would be, let's train for the cage fight. If a cage fight is what they want, let's do it. Let's beef up the arguments. Let's turn up the rhetoric, bulk up, and consider how to bring the pain, right? If we're going to be dragged into the public square, let's be ready when they drag us there. We've had more than enough, right? It's time to bring the pain. We must correct the error in our thinking that if we only make right arguments in the most gentle ways, that the world would finally listen to the things that we have to say in the public square. Friends, I think that day is just about done. But we appear, we, we appear to be far beyond the stage in which we can think that we can win souls with a rational public dialogue. Honestly, I'm not sure that that was ever really a good stage to be in. Listen, in a world of right arguments and right words, we can begin to think that we can trust ourselves and our morality, our Christian witness, that we can think that a we can think of ourselves and our persuasiveness. We can find people who are good debaters and say, yeah, that's our guy. Look at him winning the arguments. But are we really that persuasive as to bring light out of darkness by the power of our debate without a dependence upon our master? I wonder if that is part of where we have gone wrong when it was more like Athens. The true response of Scripture is to look at the hand of the master at all times, even as we seek to persuade by our word, by our lives, that the lost must look to him too. And that's the error. We make fine arguments and we invite people to look at them, us and our arguments. May the world find us, whether they beat us or take us seriously, looking to Jesus and invited to look to him too. It is our mission to point our community to Jesus Christ, to our God and his gospel. As the temperature of our culture moves further from cool and rational debate to a heat and fury of a cage fight, may we not find ourselves in a fit of fury, but in a humble posture of dependence. May the words be increasingly quick off of our mouth. If we're ever holding a microphone, may that microphone pick us up just almost inaudibly, Lord. Lord, have mercy. Look at that fool crying out like Jesus on a cross. Lord, have mercy. Yeah. Lord, have mercy. This is our cry. I remember reading an article back when we did our sermon series uh, through the book of Daniel, I read that article by Steve McAlpine, and I thought that above all the gifts that we need from the Lord in this day, the greatest need that we have is for humility and dependence. Specifically, we need humility and patience to watch, to look 
for the hand of our master. I want to draw our attention to one last scripture before we close. The call is clear. You can hear it, right? What's the application point? You know what it is. To become a people who look to the hand of the master. I mean, it's, it's, it's only four verses. It's not too complex. To become a people who look to the hand of the master. To become a people who are dependent upon him for mercy. But friends, there's good news. We know so much more about the nature of his mercy than just these four verses tell us. I would draw our attention as we close to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. A passage that is familiar to many at Cross Point Coast as we turn here often. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but God. Again, he does it. It doesn't just tell us God. It gives us unnecessary words if you just want to move the sentence along. But it doesn't want to just move the sentence along. He wants to give us information about what should come to our mind when we hear the word God. But God, being rich in mercy. What is the hand you look to? It's a rich in mercy sort of hand. Because of the great love with which he loved us, Again, unnecessary words. If there isn't something for us, servants of the Master to know about the hand of the Master, He loves us with a great love. Even when we were dead in trip, we were unworthy servants of the Master, made us alive together with Christ. By grace. You have been saved. Friends, that grace is a place. It has a work. It is the work of Christ on the cross for sins that I ought to die for. He died for in my place and in yours. The application point is the same for every person in this room. Look to the hand of the Lord for mercy. It's called faith. The call today is for faith. My guess is that for some in the room, that call is a a call that reaches your ears for the first time that you have believed it. And the call to you is turn to the Lord. Confess your sins to him. Let Confess, I have been an unworthy servant. But your grace to me is rich in Christ. And you receive mercy. My prayer is that every one of us would apply this in our lives, that we would constantly turn to the Lord for his grace. Heavenly Father, we do pray this. We ask you, have mercy on us. Oh, Lord, have mercy. That simple cry is rich with meaning. Diversity in this context and in your church that goes far beyond these walls. Our cry is for your divine, sovereign, wise, and abundant mercy, O Lord. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here who is still depending on themselves, who is still leaning on vain or rational arguments that deny a creator, Lord, I pray that rationalized arguments, I should say, I pray that you would invade that heart, humble that soul, to cry out to you in faith. And that we together would find ourselves in that same position, whether today is the first day of new life in Christ or 
a yet many decades long journey. Lord, we would all find ourselves in the same place, at the feet of the master who has been merciful upon us, looking to your hand for mercy. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.